Good morning, everyone. Everyone hear me okay? No? Yes? Yes. Good. Thank you so much, guys. That was wonderful. Lovely to have some of these new songs to sing, and um, that one, I think, is an especially good worship song um, to sing. Well, would you open your Bibles and or phones and or tablets to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? for me, please. If you don't have a Bible, phone, or tablet, then you're just going to have to trust that I'm telling you the truth this morning. (laughs) Um, If you're visiting with us, or if you haven't been in church for the past six weeks, uh, good to see you, first things first. Um, But we are in the middle of a series, a teaching series, on the second letter to the Corinthians found in the New Testament portion of your Bible. And it's written by a guy called Paul as hopefully you will know by now if you've been with us. Um, and he, uh, it was written to those that were professing to follow Jesus in the ancient city of Corinth. And we think it was written about AD 56, so it's quite old. Um, and it appears to have been written, this letter is written in response to a number of criticisms and accusations that have been made uh, by the believers in Corinth against Paul. Uh, and it seems that the believers had become beguiled by other leaders and teachers in the church. Well, you didn't know that I knew the word beguiled, did you? I've been studying. Um, and they'd begun to reject Paul's authority and his, uh, his ministry over them. And he, Paul had founded this church, he cared deeply about this church. And so he writes this, this letter to defend his integrity and his authority as an apostle. An apostle just, uh, just means sent one, one that's been sent from God. Um, But at the same time that he's defending his motivation and his heart, um, he teaches the believers some wonderful principles for Christian living. Uh, And he begins to show us what it looks like to live a life for God. And it's not an easy letter, as I'm sure um, you've been discovering as you've studied along with us. Firstly, Paul isn't the easiest to understand. Uh, Sometimes we have to pick apart his words carefully. Um, But secondly, I think it's not, not easy because it challenges us. It causes us to look at our own life and our own integrity and and question, are we really living the life that God wants us to live? So we're going to carry on with that this morning. Are you up for being challenged this morning? (laughs) What? (laughs) I'll take that as a yes. Um, So last week then, Steve uh, kicked us off on on chapter 5. All the previous weeks are on iTunes if you you want to... check any of them out, you can get them on our website. Um, and at the start of chapter 5, Paul is talking about our heavenly bodies. Now, I've used many words to describe my body. Um, heavenly is not one of them. <laughs> Others may have. Uh, who am I to say? Um, but I was quite encouraged last week uh, by the message that we have this uh, resurrected body to look forward to. And Steve finished um, us off last week at verse 10 of chapter 5. Oh dear. End of slideshow. Did we finish at the end uh, there, Mark? Can we go back to the beginning? Unless you want me to just leave now. Okay. Yes, we're back in. Good. Um, So we finished at verse 10 of chapter 5, and this is what it says. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body. That's our current body. Um, Whether good or bad. Now, 
This admittedly is not the most comfortable place to pause for a week, is it? The judgment seat of Christ is perhaps a somewhat um, unsettling idea, and I'm sure there's been discussions in your life groups about that um, this week. But I've been pondering myself, why is Paul bringing this up? Why is he talking about this? And initially I thought he might be trying to sort of scare the Corinthians into behaving themselves. You know, that idea of Jesus is coming, quick look busy. Um, That kind of approach. But I'm not, I'm not sure that's it, well, at least not entirely. You see, I think what Paul is trying to do, and in this chapter particularly, is I think he's trying to awaken the Corinthians to a deeper reality. I think he's trying to broaden their horizon, their perspective. And at the end of chapter 4, he tells them that they are to fix their eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. And he wants the, the, the Corinthians, and indeed us, to notice that their lives as followers of Jesus are no longer just about the here and now, the day-to-day, but that they, they're about the things of eternity, the things that they're going to receive from God in the future. And it's about living a life that has purpose and meaning far beyond today. And, um, you know, he's going to explore that with us the rest of the chapter. And, and he, what he wants us to see is that we have this new goal now. We have this new aim in our life. And he tells us plainly what that is in verse um, 9. Don't worry, I know I'm going backwards. I will go forwards in a minute, I promise. Um, But he says in verse 9, So make it our goal to please him. And the him for Paul is Jesus. The goal for Paul is to please Jesus. To live in such a way that when he meets Jesus face to face, that he will be proud of the work that Paul has done in his name. And a couple of times in this series already, um, Steve and me have both mentioned uh, another quote of Paul's from the letter to the Philippians, which says, For me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. I'm going to devote my whole life to living for him, and when I die, I will be with him. And this passion, this um, passion that Paul has for living for Christ is evidenced through his letters. And uh, when he writes to the Corinthians in this letter and the previous one, he doesn't, he doesn't ever try to promote himself so much as he tries to promote the incredible work that Jesus has done in his life. In fact, he says that the Corinthians and he, they're co-workers. He doesn't say I'm your leader. He says, we're co-workers in Christ. He says, you know, Jesus has changed me and he's changed you. So together, let's figure out what it means to live for him. And it's really important. I just wanted to start with this today that we don't, as we study these letters, we don't start to see Paul as um, the author of our salvation. Because Paul's aim is always to point us back to Jesus. That's what he's all about. And he wants us to live... Um, he wants to live his life as an example of what it looks like to be sold out for Jesus. To make him your highest priority. So I'm going to just read to you um, as we kick off today the, the rest of chapter 5. Um, and as I do it, just notice, just notice how much Paul mentions Jesus. How much he talks about him. Christ is how he refers to him in these verses. I'm going to start off where we left off um, in verse 10. And hopefully the words will be... On screen. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things well done in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I, I hope it's plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but giving an opportunity for you to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what's in the heart. 
If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for, live, uh, for, for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. All this from God, who reconciled to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And uh, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As through God, we are making his he's, make, he's making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. God made him who has no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Whew, wow. There's a lot to unpick there this morning, isn't there? I hope you've brought your Red Bull with you. You're going to need it. Twelve times in eleven verses, Paul mentions Christ there just in case you weren't counting. And he wants the Corinthians to learn how to live this life that is pleasing to God, so that when they come face to face, they have this opportunity to be proud of each other. And you might remember, we read back in chapter 2, he says, As you've come to understand in part, I want you to understand fully, so that you can boast of us, just as we will boast in you on the day of the Lord Jesus. And so he begins this, this second section of chapter 5 by offering two motivations to the Corinthians. Two ways that they can be motivated to live this life that's pleasing to Christ. And the two motivations are the fear of Jesus and the love of Jesus. So, let's look at fear first. Let's get the scary one out of the way. He writes in verse 11, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade Others. And the Greek term that's used here is phobos, and that ranges from anything from um, panic and fright through to awe and reverence. And sometimes I think we think of fear as this bad thing, but actually, fear is so often the thing that keeps us on the right track, right? Fear is the thing that keeps us from making a mistake. And, you know, sometimes uh, I, I panic that my son Elijah has forgotten what it is to fear. Um, the other day I found him on top of a very large set of drawers, um, about to jump, convinced that he was Spider-Man. Um, and and I, it was my duty as a father to try and instill some fear back in him. You know, son, if you, if you fly off there, you're going to hurt yourself, you might, you might break your legs, you know, you're not Spider-Man. And uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to convince a four-year-old that they're not Spider-Man. Um, it's, it's more complicated than one might imagine. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> the fear that Paul is talking about here is the fear of facing Jesus. And it's that judgment seat that we, we mentioned earlier. And to be clear with you this morning, and to hopefully remove some of the panic, what the judgment seat that, that, that Paul is talking about is not um, whether or not we make it into eternity. This isn't um, heaven and hell kind of territory. Paul is very clear with us in his letters about how we receive eternal life. You know, we just read in verse 19 that God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And the work, the work of Jesus is complete. He's died 
He died in order to reconcile or put you right with God. That's why he did it. And in chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Such confidence we have in Christ through God. Not confidence in his own works, but that in the work of Jesus will lead to salvation. Uh, And those of us who have accepted Jesus, we have this firm foundation. But it's up to us to build upon that foundation. So the judgment seat Paul is talking about is not whether you'll be judged worthy of eternity. Because if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then yeah, you will. Um, It's more a case of what have you done since you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now this might be... um, perhaps an uncomfortable question for us this morning. You know, it might feel a bit like God is sort of wagging a finger at us, expecting now that he's saved us for us to uh, lead these perfect lives, right? But I don't think that that's it either, really. I think Paul wants us to see that we have an opportunity in this life to do a work that really matters, to do a work that has consequences beyond our lives, You know, Jesus said, and and Paul is always in line with Jesus' teaching. Um, Jesus said in Matthew, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Remember, Paul says that he wants us to fix our eyes on what is unseen. Not on what is seen. And he tells us in verse 10 that, that, when, that we're going to receive what's due to us for the things done in the body. Doesn't he? That's what it says we get to the judgment seat. We'll receive what's done to us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. How we've acted. What we've done. Who we've served. Who we've visited. How we've loved. Who we've lifted up. Who we've poured our time and energy into. Who we've made a drink for. Who we've fed. Who we've seen when they're in trouble. And you might think, well, you know, you've been a little bit petty here now. But again, if we think about the words of Jesus, he said, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And you see the little things, the little things matter to God. The way we live our lives matters to God. Who we are when no one is watching, matters to God. Please don't misunderstand this. Don't, don't mishear me this morning. God isn't looking to condemn us. He isn't looking for an excuse to punish us. God is looking to reward us. And more than that, you know, he doesn't want us to miss out on who he has made us to be. You know, God has given us all these unique talents and abilities for um, use in his kingdom. And he loves it. When we live for his purposes. And I just get the impression from reading this that that it might be the case that some of us will stand before Jesus and we'll look back at our lives and we'll think, gosh, I wish I could go back and do that again. I wish I just told that person about you, Jesus. I wish I hadn't missed that opportunity to serve you in that way. And you know, Paul, again, his, line, his, his teaching is in line with Jesus. Jesus told many parables about this sort of thing during his time on earth. And um, if you think about the parable of the talents, I haven't really got time to go into it this morning. It's in Matthew 25, if you're not familiar with it. But essentially, the master comes looking to see what his servants have done with the talents he left them. 
And he rejoices with those. There is joy with those that have used them wisely. But there's darkness and sadness for those that hide them away. And I just want us to be sure that we don't miss out on the life that God is calling us to. So that's the, that's the fear. In verse 11 he says, doesn't he, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. And he responds to that by uh, having this fresh zeal for evangelism. I don't want to miss out on this life. I know that God has called me to take the gospel, so that's what I'm going to do all the more. You know, for me, you know, I agonize over these words that I speak to you on a Sunday morning because when I get to heaven, I want to hear Jesus say to me, thank you for telling them about me. Thank you for giving it to them straight. What do you want to hear Jesus say to you? Thank you for loving those children enough to tell them about me. Thank you for being there for those teenagers when no one else would. Thank you for all those hours spending that, preparing that Bible study. Thank you for telling your neighbor that, that I love them. Thank you for caring for that sick person. Thank you for looking after that poor person. Thank you for caring for that, that person who was lost, that person who was broken. Thank you. Paul's second motivation, then, is the love of Christ. And after talking about the judgment, um, he wants to bring us back to the love of Christ. He says in verse 14, For Christ's love compels us. The message translation says it this way, His love is the first and last word in everything that we do. And Paul, here, he's not talking about our love for Christ, because our love is an imperfect one, isn't it? As much as we might try, we don't love unconditionally. The love that Paul is talking about here is Christ's love for us. The Greek word is agape. It's the divine love, God's love for us. A love that will never change. A love that is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. And Paul goes on to remind us that that love is shown to us at the cross, doesn't he? He says, one died for all. It's a love that is proven to us in history and a love that will stand forever. Christ has died for you. And I think the difficulty we have with this love is that whilst God's love is perfect for us, our love is not. And we are fickle, aren't we? We're changeable. Um, some days we like to re- we live in that reality of God's love for us. We, we know that we are bought with a price. We know that we are loved beyond measure. We feel it. We understand it. And then other days we live as though we have no value whatsoever. As though we are without purpose or meaning. Paul says that he is convinced. This isn't some vague feeling. This is a firm belief. This is a motivation for him. The fact that Christ died for him is his reality. His raison d'etre. His reason for being. For me to live is Christ. That's it. In Romans 5, 5, he writes, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And if this morning you don't know the reality of God's love, then I pray that he would pour his love into you. Because you see, Jesus didn't just die for all. Jesus died for you. (laughs) For you specifically. Regardless of that thing that you did last Thursday that you don't want anyone to know about. He still died for you. And we need to learn what it means to live in the reality of that love. The more we understand it, the more we become who we're meant to be. You know, Paul goes on to say that um, he died for all, but those who live for him should no longer live for themselves. Those who live for him tells us there's a response to be made to the sacrifice of Jesus. No one is excluded from this 
No one. The possibility of salvation is there for everyone. Jesus' death was for all, but it doesn't mean that it's accepted by all. That's a choice that we have to make. It also doesn't mean that those who accept God's love continue to live in it. Sometimes, I think even those of us who are Christians need to ask ourselves again, what is our motivation? What's driving us at the moment? Are we like Paul, compelled, compelled by love or something else? Because, you know, if we, if, we, if we find that we're living for God out of a sense of duty or a sense of habit, then we'll quickly become tired and frustrated and agitated and annoyed. And we, we easily slip into old habits. And maybe you sense that's you um, this morning. Maybe this morning we need to pray for you at the end that God will again pour his love into you by his Holy Spirit. But if we keep the unchanging love of God at the centre the unchanging love of God demonstrated by the cross of Christ in our hearts, then our desire to live for him will be the easiest thing in the world. You know, it's, it's one of the reasons we do communion every single month, just to have that reminder of what Christ did for us, to remember how much we are loved, that we are bought with a price. You okay? You still with me? Good. So Paul's motivations for living to please Jesus are fear and they are love. But what does this new life look like? What does this new life that he wants us to lead actually look like? Well, first of all, he wants us to have the perspective of Jesus. He writes in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. How many of you feel like a new creation this morning? How many of you sort of felt like a new creation some time ago, but now you're not so sure? <laughs> um, so this new creation, it isn't our new bodies that he's been talking about previously. This new creation, um, it's a change in our heart that affects the way that we see the world around us. Okay? That's what's happened. And again, Paul is trying to broaden our horizon. He's trying to waken us up to this deeper reality that we're now um, living in. And he tells them what the change looks like in the previous verse. In verse 16, he says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. And Paul really, you know, he's speaking from personal experience when he writes this. This is hugely um, personal for him. His own life was a perfect example of this. Um, Listen to the, his testimony about himself recorded in Acts 22. This is what he says. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting men and women and throwing them in prison. And the high priest and the council, they can testify to this. I obtained letters from them and their associates in Damascus, and I went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul believed that Jesus was nothing more than a revolutionary. A dissident who, whose followers needed to be quashed, needed to be imprisoned and killed and wiped out. He was a troublemaker. He was someone that was coming against the establishment. He needed to be done away with. He had a very negative view of Jesus. But God changed him. And, and this is really interesting. I found this really interesting today. I, ho I hope you do as well. Um, but there are two ways, actually. Two ways that God changes him. Firstly, there's an encounter with Jesus that changes the way Paul views Jesus. But secondly, there is an encounter with another believer who's been given a heavenly perspective. Okay? 
Let me just indulge me for a moment, if you will. I want to read to you from Acts um, chapter 9. It says, In Damascus there was a man named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Uh, yeah, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. No need for Google Maps with God. He gives you direct directions. And asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, that's you, come to a place, his hands on him, and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. Uh, And he's come here with authority from chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. The Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. So Ananias, he's told by God uh, to go to Saul, and he responds by saying, "Uh, Saul, are you sure, God? Because, you know, if I go there, I think I might not be coming back anytime soon. Maybe you could just check again, just make sure we've got the right guy. And God's like, yeah, I know. But guess what? I'm going to change him. I'm going to use him for my purposes. He's not going to stay that way if you go to him. And so Ananias is given this view of Paul that's different to all the other believers. And I just wonder how our perspective of people would change if we began to see them not as the world does, but as God does. You know, if God can change someone who systematically set out to destroy the church into someone who wrote quite a lot of the New Testament, you know, that we're studying in Tamworth 2,000 years later, what might he do with Dave from work? Or Linda from Starbucks? Or Tina from the schoolroom? Um, And here's a scarier thought. What if somebody you know has already met Jesus but they're waiting for you to explain it to them and pray with them. Because, you know, it says, it says in Acts 9 that it's when Ananias prays with Paul that he receives the Holy Spirit. Not at the, on the Damascus Road, but it's that time later on when that believer who sees beyond what everybody else sees in Paul prays with him that he receives the Holy Spirit. Interesting, right? No? Just me. Okay. So our perspective on Jesus changes when we come to faith, um, or it should, and our perspective on everybody else should change as well. And just a final thing on this point, um, because I feel like you you were a little bit lackluster when I asked if you felt like a new creation. Um, You know, I believe that God is also, we are a new creation, but God is also working in us to bring us to completion. He writes in Philippians, I'm confident this, that he who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion into the day of Christ Jesus. So you are both a new creation and you're being made new. Which is why we still sometimes struggle to love people. <laughs> okay? Don't panic. Um, so we're given a perspective of Jesus, but we're also giving it a ministry. We're given it a job by Jesus. We've got a, a job to do. He says in uh, verse 18, uh, back to 2 Corinthians 5, if you flick to Acts. He says in uh, 2.5.18, All this from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There you go. I bet you didn't know you were a minister of reconciliation, did you? Now you're wondering what it is, aren't you? What have I signed up for now? Um, Well, those of us who follow Jesus, we have been reconciled to God by the work of the cross. 
in other words, the thing that was the, the problem, the sin in our lives has been put right. It's been fixed. It's been sorted out. And so now our job is to tell others how they too can be reconciled. All right? Not too complicated. And there's three ways we do that. Firstly, we keep close to God. Secondly, we keep close to man. Thirdly, we bring man and God together. So we make sure that we're dependent on God, that we're walking with him, that we're secure in his love, that we're viewing the world through his eyes, you know, the sorts of things we've been talking about this morning. And then we work hard to keep relationships with people that don't know God. Or, or in some cases, we work hard to make relationships with people who don't know God. And then, here's the tricky part, tell them about Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus did, didn't he? He spent time with people who were far away from God, people that weren't interested in God. He ate with them, he drank with them, he got to know them, and then he told them the good news. And that's what we need to do as well. We need to tell them about Jesus, about how he died for us, and about how we're happy about it. You are happy about it, right? Yes. (laughs) We're going to need to do a lot of praying that we're filled with the love of God, I think, later. You know, if you stand on a street corner with a megaphone and yell at people that Jesus is Lord, chances are they're going to walk on by and want nothing to do with you. But if you get to know people and if you love them, they're far more likely to believe you when you tell them that Jesus has made the difference in your life. And it's a challenge to us. I know it is because those of us who've been in church a long time, you know, we get very comfortable and cozy in our church meetings and our our Bible studies and our worship times together and our prayer groups and and, and our women's events and and all the things that we do together as Christians. And, and, And it's easy then, isn't it, to shut out the outside world. For those old friends to disappear. And conversely, you know, we can spend so little time with God or fellowship with other believers that we don't have enough faith to actually want to share that God has made the difference in our life. And both extremes prevent us from having this ministry of reconciliation, from living a life that's pleasing to Jesus. But the reassuring thing is that we're not alone in this task. The next thing that Paul talks about um, is the family of Jesus And actually, this isn't a particular verse. This is the chapter, as I've looked at this, I've noticed. You know, he uses the pronoun we or us a lot. Just read it back through yourselves when you you get a chance. We or us. He nearly never says I or me. And it's partly because Paul isn't just writing this letter on his own behalf. Remember, at the beginning of the letter, he talks about him being an apostle uh, by the will of God. And Timothy, he says, and Timothy, our brother. He doesn't say my brother, he says our brother, because he wants them to see that they are all brothers and sisters together in Christ. But Paul, he always has someone with him. I don't know if you've noticed. Initially, it was a guy called Barnabas, and then later on Silas, then Timothy, then Titus, then Priscilla, then Aquila, then Urbanus, then Epaphroditus, then Clement, then Aristarchus, and Mark, and Justus, and Philemon, Apollos, Demas, Luke, and then many, many, many others through his letters. (laughs) Thank you. it's interesting how many of these are written phonetically and how many are spelled correctly. Um, but, you know, his letters are full of people that he partners with, that he works alongside to spread the news of the gospel. And there are times when he ends up on his own, when he's in prison. Um, but, you know, wherever it's possible, Paul places great importance on partnering with others. Again, he's perfectly in line with Jesus. Luke 10, Jesus sends out 72 of his followers to heal the sick and tell them about the kingdom of God. And he sends them out two by two. And there's a verse in Ecclesiastes uh, 4, 9 to 10, which says, Two are better than one, because they get a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, the other one can help them up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. And Paul wants his readers to know that they're in this together. 
You know, that they're called to this life, uh, their calling to this life in Christ is not supposed to be a lonely walk. And I feel like there's a danger sometimes um, in church that there's a few people that end up doing a lot of the work. Now, I don't, I'm not necessarily talking about our church here, because we had, a, we had a, um, a volunteers evening at the start of the year, and this place was packed. You know, there were over 100 volunteers here, and I know how hard and how committed that you guys are to the mission um, of this church, and we're so appreciative of that. But I do worry that sometimes we look at others and we think, you know what, they're doing such a good job. There's nothing more that I could add. There's nothing more that I could do to help. And when we do that, we miss this opportunity to use those gifts given us, to us by God. Because God hasn't just placed us together to, to have a nice time on a Sunday morning and have a coffee together and sing some songs. You know, he's placed us together so we can do the kind of work that will make us proud of each other when we come face to face with Jesus. And I want us to be excited about that. <laughs> One final thing from this chapter and then I'll shut up, I promise. I know I've said a lot this morning. Blame Paul, don't blame me. Paul calls us ambassadors of Christ at the end of this chapter. In verse 20, he writes, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. And actually, I think this is a pretty good summary of this chapter. This is a pretty good way of viewing um, uh, how we live this life that's pleasing to Jesus. You know, previously, he's talked about us being letters, hasn't he? Open letters that anyone can read. Um, but now he's upping the game. He's up in the ante saying, you're not just letters, but you're actually ambassadors. You're actually people that are sent to a place with a specific mission and purpose. So what is an ambassador? Well, there is an important official who works in a foreign country representing his or her own country there. And they're given a job to do, as I say, a responsibility. And Paul has already told us what that is. He says our responsibility is to be these ministers of reconciliation. Ambassadors don't speak on their own behalf, but on behalf of the one who sent them. And we have a message to bring, don't we? We have a message to bring to those who don't know God, that they can know God through Jesus. And very often they'll spend their time in a country where they don't speak the same language, and so they have to get to know people well in order to communicate effectively. And the honour of the country is in the ambassador's hands. His country is judged by him. His words are listened to. His actions are watched closely. Remember Paul started talking about that judgment seat where we are given account for how we behave, for the things that we do, the way that we live. And the ambassador's goal is to please his country's ruler. And again, Paul tells us that our aim, or our aim should be, to please the Lord Jesus, our Saviour. And then just to round the chapter off nicely, he finishes once again by reminding us of that love that compels us. It is this brilliant verse. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I encourage you this morning just to personalize that as you go today, to reread that, that God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for me, so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. And you know, in many ways, that's a one-sentence summary of the whole gospel, isn't it? Jesus died in your place to bring you back to God in order that you might live for him, to give you purpose and meaning so that you can engage in a work that goes far beyond today 
So that you'll look back at your life when you stand with Jesus and say, wow, thank you. Thank you, God, for letting me work for you and giving me all those opportunities to serve you. And I see the value and I see the worth in the things that I did for you. It's summarized beautifully in the famous hymn by Isaac Watts, which ends with the line, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so we make it our goal to please Jesus. We're motivated by fear and love. Fear of missing out and the love that was shown to us on the cross. We're given a new perspective so that we're able to see Jesus and others in a new light, which helps us become ministers of reconciliation. Staying close to God and man in order to bring the two together. And we work alongside our family, our co-workers, our brothers and sisters in Christ, lifting each other up and fulfilling the role of ambassador of Christ in the world. Does that make sense? <laughs> I realise that there is a heck of a lot in there this morning, um, and it may just be the case that, that, that as I've spoken, certain things have resonated with you, and you thought, yeah, that bit, that bit there's for me. Maybe not the whole message, but that little thing, that's just spoken to me this morning. And as we have this time, of this last song that we're going to sing together this morning, I would just encourage you to pray into that um, and see what God does in your life. Let's just, as the band come up, let's just close our, our, our time in prayer together. Father God, thank you for that message that you delivered to us this morning through Paul's writing to to Corinth. Father, I pray that you would pour your love into our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Father, we would live in the reality of that love. That we would say with confidence that it is Christ's love that compels us. And Father, I thank you that you've given us the opportunity to be ministers of reconciliation. Father, not that you've just saved us, that you've, you've brought us out of the darkness into, into your perfect light, but Father, that you now allow us to partner with you in bringing others into that perfect light. And Father, I pray that as we go into this week, we would go in proudly representing you and your nation and your values and your country. And we would see ourselves as your ambassadors in this town, in this place, in our work, in our home, at our school, at our college, wherever we may be this week, that we would be good ambassadors for you. In Jesus' name, amen.